Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I am your host, Brian, and today's special guest is Deanna Rayburn. Deanna is a sixth-generation native Texan. And before I read the rest of your bio, I just want to ask, what year does that go back to? I'm very curious about this. <laughs> um, I would have to dig out my mom's genealogy, actually, to get the exact year. But I know it predates the Texas War for Independence. Holy smokes. Okay. So cool. It's, that's so cool. But I, I just had to ask before I forgot the question. Okay. Her novels have been nominated for numerous awards, including two uh, RT Reviewers Choice Awards, the Agatha, and most recently, the 2019 Edgar Award for Best Novel. She launched a, she launched a new Victorian mystery series with the 2015 release of A Curious Beginning, feature intrepid butterfly hunter and amateur sleuth Veronica Speedwell. Veronica has returned in several more adventures, most recently in Impossible Imposter, book seven, which was released in early 2022. Deanna's first contemporary novel, Killers of a Certain Age, about four female assassins on the cusp of retirement. What a setup was published <laughs> on September 22nd, 2022, about a month ago and available everywhere. Deanna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, before we dive into the the juicy writing questions, I wanted to ask you, I saw that you have a dual degree in English and history. I do. Um, and I wanted to just, just ask, what is your favorite period of history? Ooh, that's like asking me to choose a favorite child. I know. Um, I know. That's what I was like. Easy <laughs> because like, I just have the one child. Okay. Uh, but um, no, you know, it, it is whichever period of history I have gone down the rabbit hole uh, that particular week, you know, it could be ancient Greece. It could be Victorian London. It could be, uh, it could be Imperial Russia. It just, it depends on, on what I'm intrigued by. And, you know, like right now I'm just finishing my fourth biography in two weeks on Evita Peron, just because mm. I, I kind of got this wild hair about reading about Evita. Um, so yeah, it's whatever, whatever kind of, uh, hits my fancy. I probably know the most about Victorian London. Okay. I, I find, um, I find a grasp or working knowledge of history to be incredibly important for storytelling mm -hmm. because there's certain themes, certain people, I mean, history creates way weirder situations than we could ever create out of thin air. Um, but I'm wondering, as you look back, like how, how much has like your love of history and study of history, um, how much of that has impacted both the series, you know, about, um, kind of set in, in the Victorian mystery series, but also all of the other work and, and works that you've had going on since then. Well, it's, it's actually kind of a, a cart and horse situation because it was the storytelling that came before the love of history. Oh, interesting. Because for me, I distinctly remember as a kid being super excited when I learned how to print because I could get the stories out of my head. 
um, and onto paper finally. And then it was after that that I started realizing that there were real stories that had happened to real people that were every bit as interesting um, and a lot of times way more improbable than anything I could create. Um, and so that's that's when I, I started to get very much into history, just because of the fact that it's attached to stories. Um, I, uh, the university I went to had a very small history department, and so we had a limited number of history courses that we could take. And, and you know, I mean, I, I, I went to college a very long time ago. I graduated in 1990, and there was not nearly as much being taught then, especially not at a smaller university, about social history, material history, about what women were doing. It was a mm. lot of what were white Western European men doing. Mm -hmm. and they were doing war and when they weren't doing war they were they were they were trading so it's it's either money or war and it's dudes and so that was a to me it was a very very limited focus and I was I was far more interested in um, kind of a bigger picture what were women doing what were people of color doing what were people who maybe didn't fit the norm um, for their society in terms of how they presented themselves um, with regard to either um, gender or religion or sexuality or any of these other ways that human beings are so wonderfully variable, that to me was a far more interesting thing. And so I, I kind of had to go on my own to start delving into those areas and broadening my understanding of what history was and who gets to tell the stories. Yeah, that's so, that's such an interesting point. Something Something you're saying, like, connected a thought in my head and i'd love to like hear your reaction to it which is um there's there's in history and in literature there's certainly been a pattern of what is discussed and carried down at least through academia mm -hmm. um but in you know kind of the accepted uh canon of history accepted canon of literature stayed pretty fairly static right we talk about the same things uh kids are taught the same things uh throughout a you know, pretty broad period of time. But what it sounds like happened to you is that there was this this idea that there was your curiosity led you to this idea that there was more to the the story. There there were you were you were just holding one little piece of the thread, but that thread might go for a really long time. And a desire to unravel it, right? Keep pulling at it, see how far it goes. And that that sounds a lot like the storytelling journey as well. Like it's kind of that yeah, same idea. Yeah, you absolutely. get just that little piece. Yeah. And to me, there's there's no way, like nothing about history to me is meaningful unless you can look at the broader context of story. You know, you you the reason people are still so fascinated, Anne Boleyn was Queen of England for, for three years. Right. You know, a blip, it's a complete blip. And yet people are still so incredibly obsessed with her story. And it's because it was such an improbable rise and such a catastrophic fall in such a short period of time. And there's so much drama. And, you know, as, as far as consorts go, she was not irrelevant. You know, she was the, the um, kind of the, the inciting incident that caused Henry VIII to break with the Church of Rome. So um, in, a, in a, a very broad way, she is the reason that, that there's an Anglican church these days. And that's not insignificant. But in terms of what else she did, you know, apart from being the mother of Elizabeth I, she did not have a huge amount of time to really leave an impact and to really do much. And yet 
you look how obsessed we are with her story. You look how how many depictions mm. there are of Anne Boleyn yeah, in endless. storytelling, whether it's yeah. film or novel. You know, she's everywhere. And it's yeah. because of the fact that there there's just so much about that tale that is just unbelievable or improbable or extraordinary that we get invested in it. And it's, you know, as the title of the place says, it was a thousand days. Wow. I didn't know it was only a thousand days. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really familiar with the story, but I, I honestly had no idea that it was such a short period. Well, I mean, of time. there's a, th there's a little bit of dramatic license in saying it was a thousand days. Exactly. Sure. But, sure, but sure. It, you know, three years. Yeah. You're, you're looking at roughly a thousand days that she was queen of England and yet you know, you, you, there are so many women who were who were consorts for a much longer period of time and had a much greater impact in in their own way. And yet we don't talk about them. You know, they they're not getting prestige miniseries based on their lives. <laughs> yeah. you know, they're not getting the uh, the documentaries by Lucy Worsley on yeah. PBS because, you know, her story is the one that that we attach so much importance to. And it's. It's the same thing if you if you if you turn on the Olympics or you turn on a, a football game or, or a soccer game, if you don't know anything about the people who are participating, it doesn't mean that much. But mm. if you find out that the speed skater, you know, his grandfather is the one who took him to the track every single morning before dawn to practice and gave him his first pair of skates and died the morning of his race and he's gone on to win gold, suddenly you're super invested in what happens mm. to this guy's race. It, you, you, you belonged, yeah. you know, and that, that story belongs to you. You belong to it. And it, 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 it creates this, this, you know, kind of symbiotic relationship then between story and, and listener um, that is larger than either one of those things on their own. It, this is such an interesting topic. I, I'm, <laughs> I have like 500, this is, this is the problem with this podcast. And like, if people have listened to it, uh, you know, for a couple of years now, they'll know all the time. I like, I'm like, I have so many questions. How can I possibly just pick one? <laughs> uh, Occupational this is, hazard, right? I know this is part of the hazard. fun of doing a show like this uh, and and not being uh, like professional and needing to get something. You, like, like, it's just like, what's really interesting to talk about. I love it. I, I love the, uh, the benefit of having that frame on this show. It just makes it so fun for me. But I would love to tie this back because what you're saying, I feel like is so important, maybe under under discussed in my experience of like writing craft information and the stuff that we teach writers and the stuff we talk about as writers, which is we all know story is hugely anchored on character, right? That 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 we've all agreed on. Like, okay, we all accept this fact, if not entirely anchored on character. We've all accepted this fact. The question I have though is what is it that makes an you know Anne Boleyn? And for people who don't know, Anne Boleyn was a, a consort of King Henry VIII, and she was queen for a while, uh, got accused of, I believe, having inappropriate relationships with her brother. And they were four both... other men and her brother. Yeah, there were okay. trumped up charges in order for Henry to get rid of her. Yeah, and then she was executed mm -hmm. uh as a result. Great movie with Natalie Portman. Side note, she played that role fantastically well. But anyways, uh, what is it about that character that if you're a writer listening to the to this podcast and you're thinking, I want to pull out the evocative, the the emotional resonance of an Anne Boleyn, and I want to pull that onto the page, 
what would a, a writer listening be wise to do? What, what can we learn from Anne, at least as she's come down through the ages? Well, the, the thing is, like, like most really interesting people, she's very polarizing. You have the people who think that she was an absolute martyr to the reformist faith. And then you have the people who think she was a homewrecking whore. Um, and there's there's not a huge amount of gray area. People usually have really, really strong opinions about her. And those are, I find to me, the most interesting characters, the ones that that are not necessarily likable, but they're people that you're interested in because they're doing things that are unexpected. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned Evita earlier. You are not going to find a more polarizing woman in history, possibly, than Eva Peron, because there are, to this day, people who have altars set up with flowers and refer to her as Santa Evita. And then there are other people who, you know, are very much of the mind that that she was a complete Nazi who had turned tricks in a brothel mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, had all of her enemies uh murdered and and you know did away with them and stole millions and millions of dollars that are still sitting in a swiss bank somewhere and you're not going to find a ton of people who who kind of sit in the middle ground and discuss her with nuance because they people love to form opinions people love to take sides people love to have characters to love they love to have characters to hate um, but most of all, they love to have characters to tell stories about, which means if you have a character that's that's kind of lukewarm or a character that can't excite interest in some way in what they're doing, you're probably not going to have um, a, a very impassioned readership. Mm. So can I repeat that back to you? Because because this, this is a perspective I've not heard a lot and um, is really interesting. So in your kind of hierarchy of building character, is it more important for you to have a character that is, see, this is what's tough is finding the right word here. I don't want to say interesting, but, but, um, engaging, engaging, Somebody that, someone who engages your attention because you want to know what they're going to do next more than and, and bearing in mind too anything that i tell you about craft is just my opinion right I, I have no doubt that there is a writer who could take a character who is you know less than than what i would consider interesting and somehow make them riveting on the page i can't do that that's not where my strengths lie as a storyteller um, but, but I'm absolutely certain that there are writers who can do it. It's just not for me. Yeah, it, it, I really, I appreciate it. And, and I agree. Everything about the show, I mean, like, you know, people who are listening to the show, everything about it, we always reinforce this idea that, like, as a writer, you have to find your own way and your own process and what works for you absolutely. in this creation. There is no one size fits all. I, no, I always get the same. That's yeah. That's one of the things that I am evangelical about. Yeah, is anyone who tells you that there's one way to write is trying to sell you a book on exactly. Yeah, they're trying to sell you like something. that's there. <laughs> there is no one way to write. That's yeah. that's not a thing. Yeah. you know, storytelling is the is the oldest art form on the planet, and it's because it is absolutely irresistible, and because to a certain extent, everybody does it. Yeah. You know, every single human being will tell you what happened to them during the day. Right. Some people, you know, 
they'll do it and they'll put you to sleep doing it. And other people can keep you completely on the edge of your seat, just telling you about their root canal. But, you know, everybody engages in storytelling to one degree or another. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I, 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 I love this. This comment is making me think about a book I just read and I, I don't want to mention the title only because I need to first give a huge asterisk on it, which is it was a really freaking intense book, which might it might be like, you know, the uh, forbidden fruit as I'm saying this. Uh, but I read a book recently called Tender is the Flesh. I don't know if you've heard of this book. Mm. Uh, it's pretty new. I believe it's an Argentinian author. I can't remember her name. But it it's pretty it's a pretty bleak and brutal dystopian book um <laughs> it, it's rough so like like again be aware that that it's not an easy read but the main character is not likable in any way like not likable and yet i found myself unable to stop reading the book and part of me is wondering how much of this idea that like i was conflicted about the character i didn't like what the character was doing but it was so interesting yeah, it was. It was. It, there was just something about it that was I, I couldn't stop exploring, even though I wanted to put the book down because it was so grisly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, because I think I think likability as a metric to a character's worthiness is just bullshit. I mean, it's not to me a matter of whether or not a character's likable. It's it, it because that's such a ridiculous thing to judge a character on. I mean, and so many of the most interesting characters in literature are not, I mean, are not right. I would be seriously worried about anybody who found Humbert Humbert to be yes. likable. I thought that but same he, character. But he's, he's fascinating in terms of what are his thought processes? You know, there, there's a lot of fiction that I, I don't read. I don't read things that are dystopian. I don't read things that are, um, are, are super scary, intense thrillers. I don't read things that are terribly grisly, um, because that's just not my jam, yeah. but, um, but I, I have tremendous respect for people who are able to get into the minds of characters who exist in those worlds and are able to convey what their experiences are, because, you know, that, that being able to, to bring readers along on a ride with, um, with someone who is not likable, but who is deeply fascinating. I mean, again, that throws us right back into history. How many people in history are a hundred percent unequivocally likable? Mm. Who you know, of us? Who of us? Got, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody's got some sort of baggage. I mean, I, yeah. I, even in Seriously. like my, my mysteries are not are not particularly uh, gruesome or or violent, but I deliberately created a Victorian woman who um, who rubs some people the wrong way uh, because of the fact that that she is um, she's not promiscuous, but she is a person who um, has sexual relationships outside of the bonds of matrimony, which shocks a lot of people who don't realize that she was inspired by a real woman and that actual Victorians were having sex outside marriage and they get shocked by that. And, you know, but it was, it was a deliberate choice to include this thing that was unexpected to folks, because to me, it made her a more interesting character who would be making um, more unexpected choices. And I thought mm as just solely from a craft perspective, I thought it would be more fun uh, because that's always my default when I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to write a particular story or how I'm going to tell it is, well, what's going to be the most fun for me? Mm. Uh, because 
I mean, I don't, I, I don't like to suffer for my art. <laughs> I, I, this is the best job in the world. And I, I make it fun for myself as much as I possibly can. And, you know, in my experience, if it's fun for me, it's fun for the reader. Yeah. You mean you don't like to sit in a coffee shop and on a rainy oh day God, and no. look out the window with a journal? Oh my God. No. Open a vein. No. So no. I, 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 this is actually a really great um, transition to another question I wanted to ask you. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and just this goes very much into the, there is no right way to do this, but I'm mm-hmm. curious what the answer is for you, mm-hmm. which is like, how do you tend to come into story? Like, do you come into story through like a character? Do you come into story through like a plot point, um, like a tough question, theme? Like, like, what is it? What is like your typical entry point when you're starting a new project? Generally, it's plot. Um, it, it depends on if I'm coming in and I am building a new series mm. um, or if I am um, having to create a new world. It, it, when I'm creating a new series, I generally access it through the main character first and then through the plot. If I'm going into subsequent books in the series, then I access via plot. Uh, because I've already built the world and I know who the main character is. And then the supporting characters for that particular book will be born from the plot. I'm a lot more plot based than a lot of folks are. Yeah. Um, But I think that's because I am, I am a child of mystery and mystery is the most plot centric of the genres. Yeah. You have to not, okay. You don't have to often. I find in the, the authors that I've interviewed that write mystery and even to a certain degree, like thrillers um, mm-hmm. tend tend to really use plot to make sure that they're not. Yeah, you know, because it's all about around. the puzzle. Yeah, right. It's exactly. all about the puzzle. Yeah. And so yeah. you have to structure it in such a way that you 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 know what's going on. And of course, that's the big criticism that mystery writers always get. I mean, it's it's the the big thing that that people always say about Agatha Christie is, oh, well, her characters were were one dimensional or cardboard. And they absolutely were not. Um, but but there are certainly several books um from golden age uh mysteries where you can point to them and say well some of the characters could be a little interchangeable here because it was all about creating this incredible puzzle right right yeah are do you um do you have a specific way that you like to plot do you use any specific tools or tactics is there anything that you found that has really resonated for you um when i need to see what the plot looks like i have um giant pads of newsprint like the two by three foot pads that you can buy at the, um, well, I guess you can get them at the the hobby store or the art supply store. Um, and I just take those and some markers and, and kind of map it out uh, and, and look at how things relate to it. Usually I map up characters to see mm-hmm. how the characters are relating to each other. Um, and if there are any connections that I've missed or any connections that I need to make. Um, I, I'm, I'm always, you know, that scene in every mystery film where there's like a murder wall and they're linked by red yarn. Like yeah. that is my dream is to have a murder wall. Like oh I gosh. love those things. I have such a crush on murder walls. I think they're phenomenal. So I'll tell you this a while ago, back in a previous life, uh, we lived in Denver, Colorado. And I had a study. It was the most glorious season of my life to have my own little space. <laughs> but I I took it upon myself and I took an entire wall of my study 
and I made it, it's like magnetic whiteboard paint. So you can literally turn a wall into a giant whiteboard that's also magnetized. And I turned that into like this giant plot, you know, throw up wall, you know, it's just, it. it just was chaos. Love it. And it was the, it was probably the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my entire life. You know, I love like, it. Yeah. I used to, yeah. I had one, um, one wall of my study that where I would just tape up, um, all sorts of images that related to whatever book I was working on, um, word lists. If I'd come across a word that I wanted to incorporate, um, that, that just felt particularly right for those characters, um, that I knew would be a little bit unexpected, mm. all sorts of, of little, you know, just little bits of ephemera that I, that I would tack up. I I've moved to a different room of the house now, and I haven't done that yet. And I feel like that's when I will have fully inaugurated this room <laughs> is when I've created a plot wall of some sort. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, okay, so one last series of questions for you before mm-hmm. before I need to move us on to our final questions. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to imagine the novel writing process gets broken up into 10 parts, 10 equal pieces, right? Start to finish. Um, what, like what percent or how many of those parts are spent in like the different big chunks of the process. So in planning your novel, in composing a first draft, in editing, uh, like how how would you break up those 10 pieces on like what typically happens for you in the novel writing process? Does that question even make sense? Am I even making sense here? It, It does, but I think that, you know, there's an aspect of it that you probably would not expect most authors to allocate time to, and that is promoting the book. Um, because there, there is a chunk of time, like, you know, killers of a certain age came out September 7th. I want to say I have literally been promoting it since then. Um, which means I haven't been writing. I haven't, I'm just now beginning. Um, I had to do some, some proofreading on, uh, the eighth Veronica Speedwell book. I'm supposed to be starting book nine. Um, and I have barely been able to start uh, reading my research for book nine, because everything's gotten pushed a little bit because of the fact that, um, wonderfully, magically killers of a certain age is doing extremely well. Yeah. It's doing so Um, well. And, uh, so I've, I've had to do a lot more promotion for this book than I ordinarily would do. Um, and so taking time out to, to attend to that and kind of babysit this book as it, as it comes out into the world, um, that, it, that is actually a, a, a huge chunk of the traditionally pubbed process, um, which, you know, take, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes um, it's thoughtfulness and care if you're going to do it well. Um, and so yeah. that, that in and of itself takes a, a chunk that, you know, you kind of have to, to fit in somewhere. Um, I probably, I, I think probably if I would throw a ballpark estimate at you, I'd say probably 40% takes place up front before I even write it at all. So 40% um, of the time you're planning and plotting, yeah, and thinking about it. Okay. Yeah. I, I, when I sit down to write, um, I, I write very fast because I only write on a keyboard and I learned how to type. Like I said, I graduated a long time ago. And when I was a freshman in high school, I took, this is back when it was typing. 
it wasn't keyboarding. It wasn't anything fancy like that. It was typing. It was taught by the golf coach. Uh, <laughs> I, learned, I learned on an IBM Selectric with the keys blacked out. So you had to learn how to type by touch. And I, I type over a hundred words a minute. So when I sit down to work, I only ever write on the computer and I write fast. And so it, it tends to be that I will only sit down and write for about an hour, hour and a half um, mm. each day when I'm doing that first draft. Um, and then I like to take a week or two off minimum before I go through and three weeks is kind of a sweet spot. If I can take that time off before I go back through it and start making the changes that I know it needs and it never gets more than um, that second trip through before it goes off to my editor. So, so you're doing a, a first draft, going through and doing one one turn on it, and then it's mm -hmm. going off to yeah. then it goes another to series of editing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like done, but it goes no, it goes, no, no. Off it goes to starts... my editor, and she will ask for um, any changes that she feels are necessary. And and there are times uh, when the book is really, really close to being um, tidy and done when it goes into my editor. And then there are other times when it is just an absolute train wreck of a book. Um, and I have a lot of work to do, but that I find the, the first bash after my editor has looked at it is when it really all comes together. Um, that's when it becomes, uh, much more recognizable and much closer to what the finished, uh, product is going to be. So I'll take a bash at it after my editor has um, has offered up her suggestions and we've chatted about those. I, I'll do another draft and then I'll go through it one more time after that. And that's just to clean it. That's uh, to try and catch typos, which I'm terrible at. Um, mm. I make an effort, but I, I read fast and I skim and I literally don't see typos. So um, I'm not great at that part, but everybody knows that and they make allowances for it. Um, yeah. And then it goes back to my editor at that point. Um, and you know, it has to go through copy edits. It has to go through, um, you know, proofreading galleys and things like that. So, so start to finish, what, what would be your expectation? Like if you started a new novel today, mm -hmm. when would you expect it to be done with editing? It's out of your hands. It's not in the publication, mm -hmm. like you're not promoting it yet, but you've kind of done your work on the creation of the piece. I mean, off and on my sweet spot is, um, nine months mm -hmm. but realistically i'm not going to be writing on it for the first four or five um i i am one of those people who very much needs a deadline and mm -hmm. i work very very well under pressure mm -hmm. so i if i know i've got you know six months to turn a draft in um i'm not going to start writing on it for the first three um, I just, I don't, uh, I, for, I, and believe me, I my life would be so much easier if I did, <laughs> but I, I work much, much better to pressure. Um, and it just, it, I find that it kind of, it eliminates a lot of the doubt when I know yeah. I don't have a lot of time. I make much quicker, much more confident decisions. Um, when I was the process for killers of a certain age was much longer because of the fact that I was trying to fit it in around my Veronica Speedwell novels that I was already contracted for. And so I would write a draft and it would go to my editor and she would send me notes and I would cry. And then I would have to go work on Veronica again. Um, and then after I'd, you know, finished a pass at a Veronica novel, then I would go back and do another draft of killers. And so we were working on it off and on for two years. And it was not, it literally was not until 
96 hours before it was due that I figured out what the structure had to be because there uh, are a series of flashbacks in the book and figuring out exactly where to put them uh that that was just a thing that eluded me I just could not figure out the the optimal placement for these mm -hmm. flashback scenes there's about six of them and I could not figure out where um how to break them up and where they should go and then 96 hours before my and it was the drop dead due date it's like we're going to be going into production this has to be done i figured it out oh and my gosh at that point i you know i knew it was just a matter of doing the work then because i had not the slightest shred of doubt that that was how to fix it i i i mean in my marrow i knew that that was the key to this book and so for that entire period of time, I, I stayed in my pajamas and I wrote and I would fall into bed and I would get up and I would, you know, eat something. And then I would write until I couldn't write anymore. And then I fell into bed and I just did that, which I don't recommend. It's a terrible way to work. And I, it's not something I would have chosen it, but it was, it was exactly what I had to do to get that book where it needed to be. Oh um, and I was, six hours. Yeah, it was horrible. I was feral. I mean, like the dogs wouldn't come near me by the time I was done. Um, but it was it was exactly where the book needed to be. And um, yeah, uh, and sometimes all those those wonderful little things that are that are, you know, tinkering away in your subconscious, they don't always come together when you'd like them to. Um, for me, they they tend to come together uh, right when they have to, and not a yeah. second before. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. Cause I think a lot of writers struggle with that, which is like, and, um, I, I just want to keep talking about this, but I'm like, I know I have to move on, but, but one last point, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of writers struggle with that because it's really hard sometimes to just leave something unanswered and keep going on a manuscript. Like that, that's really hard to do you that. Have, I feel like you, you have, have to, to settle. Be, yeah, you have to be very much okay with not having all the answers. Yeah, and right. saying, you know what, I'm going to trust the process, and and I am going to trust my subconscious, and because I know that I know how to do this, and it will get there in the end. Yeah, and that's a terrifying yeah. space to kind of exist in when you're trying to make a book, uh, a book work for you, yeah. especially, you know, I had, there was a lot writing on this book for me. This was huge um, kind of, of um, risk that my publisher took to let me do this book because I've never written a contemporary before. Um, and so they were very much stepping out on faith to let me try this. And I was not a hundred percent confident I could do it. Yeah. So, you know, this, it meant basically um, two years of sitting in that space going, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm, I'm by God, I'm going to try. Yeah. Oh, I want to keep asking about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, time, you know, time it's never on our side. Um, I, I am so enjoying kind of chopping this up with you and talking about this. And I think what you're saying is so interesting, especially the courage. I mean, that, that really is the word, right? Feeling fear and pushing forward anyways, really, really is an act of courage. And, um, I, and I, I could just keep chopping that up endlessly. That said, I'm looking at the time and I'm like, okay, it is time for me to ask you the final five or final six <laughs> questions. Now I'm like, okay, Brian, you cannot keep doing this. Can I, 
total separate side note, I've often wondered about changing the format of the podcast and going to like long form, you know, doing like two hours of this. But <laughs> I also am like a little bit like, oh boy, I don't know. Does the world need two hours of of an episode like this? Um, I think it'd be cool. Oh, anyways. Okay. So let's do the final six questions. I ask the same questions every single guest that's been on the okay. show. Um, and uh, I ask these questions for two specific reasons. First reason is, I like the answers and it's my show so I could do whatever I want. And the second reason go. is <laughs> the second reason is because the entire point of this show is to um inspire and encourage writers out there to find their way to create by mm -hmm. talking to the people who are creating and hopefully sharing ideas and inspiration but also humanizing this process. I think oftentimes especially newer writers look at working writers and think they were just born differently that somehow they like have something different about them and oftentimes it's the case that like everyone's just a person um and they make some changes and some decisions that allow them a certain result um but i, I hope these questions just help reinforce this idea that the most important thing you can do as a writer is find the way you put words on the page and it's going to be individual to you and as soon as that happens the writing life opens up and if that doesn't happen, it'd be very frustrating. It's very hard to make progress in the writing life if you're not putting words on the page. So preamble out of the way, got that done. Let us dive into the first question, which is, how do you view your role as a storyteller? Magician. Oh, I haven't gotten this answer yet. Please do share. Oh, I think, it, it, like I said earlier, it is it is the world's oldest art form, and I think it is it is the the conjuring of illusion. It is taking people out of the time and place in which they exist, and transporting them someplace else for just a little while, offering mm. escape, and drama, and theater, and poetry, and uh catharsis and every experience of every human emotion and then just kind of gently depositing them back where they started i love that that's what makes the show so fun to do is it's like i i get to hear answers like that how that's that's such a fun soundbite i love that okay next question for you uh what is the one word that best describes you mercurial mm -hmm. I'm a Gemini and uh, Mercury too. is the ruling planet. So very changeable um, because I guarantee you, if you sat me down tomorrow and asked me all of these questions over again, I would probably give you different answers. <laughs> <laughs> this is all very much off the cuff, just, you know, mm. speaking today's truth as it happens to be. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Uh, next question for you. If you had to pick a spirit book, right? So this is a book that um, if you died and you were able to be reincarnated as a book, this would be the book that you would choose. It most closely re resembles like who you are, who you want to be, resembles your soul. What book would you pick? Some beautifully illuminated medieval puzzle codex that nobody's figured out. A medieval puzzle codex. I have not heard this term before. What is what is this mysterious? Yeah, there book? are well, there are um every once in a while, um, you'll run across mentions of a codex that um has been written that nobody has been able to decode. And I find them fascinating. 
That's the most interesting thing I've heard all day. I had no idea that existed. Um, See? A fun new rabbit hole for you. Yeah, I know. It's like the last thing I need is <laughs> is the discovery of this. I'm like, okay, there goes more of Brian's time. Um, okay, next question for you. Is there a specific tool? It can be anything at all, pencil, software, chair, coffee, tea, anything that you absolutely must have to write? Uh, no, I have my preference, which is a keyboard, but uh, no. I mean, if I have to, I can I can write with my finger in the dirt. I'm <laughs> I'm a storyteller. It's not about the tools, it's about the mind. Yeah. Okay. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? I know that being a writer and being an author are two different things. They require two different skill sets. Um, being an author is something I'm lucky enough to do for my job. Being a writer is who I am as a person because the storytelling has always been there. The storytelling will always be there. If my traditional publishing contract disappeared tomorrow and nobody ever wanted to read a book of mine again, I would still create stories because that's what I do. Mm. That's the, that's the, the lens through which I see the world and it's how I experience life. Um, and so there's actually something very grounding about knowing that is who you are. Mm. And so the, the, the vagaries of the, the business itself, that's almost incidental to the fact that I, I get to do what I feel like I was born to do. Yeah. Mm. I really like that. That's <laughs> That's very, I mean, that's, that, that has a lot of resonance for me. Um, okay, last question for you. If you could give just one piece of advice to new writers out there, what would it be? I, I think it would honestly, you know, I used to say that it was um, discipline and you just, you've got to sit your ass in the chair and you've got to write. But I think even more important that than that is the idea that you need to turn loose of the notion that more established writers know more than you do because i i am an absolute world-class expert on my writing process hmm. i don't know jack shit about anybody else's <laughs> i'm not i'm not authorized to to give you advice on your writing process because you are the expert in that and you know a lot more about it probably than you think you do i think i think um Writers who are not as established a lot of times look to people who are more established because they feel like we do have those answers and all we have is, is our own experience and our own confidence. Um, and a lot of it is just a matter of kind of faking it till you make it and just trying things because you don't know for sure until you step out and, and actually take those risks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. There, there's, um, I was just talking to my wife this morning about this. Um, there's, there's two schools of thought on how to accomplish something. School of thought number one is to analyze first and then act. And school of thought mm -hmm. two is to act and then analyze. Right. And in my experience in life and writing and just across the board, having a bias towards acting and then asking yourself, is this working for me as an individual? Mm -hmm. Is this is this helping my writing process? But leading with doing uh, almost always is going to produce better results. That's not to say you should mindlessly do things, but having a bias towards action, I feel like, especially in the writing life, is 
a huge long-term benefit. That is a hundred percent my experience. Yeah. Whether it's learning to knit, whether it's French lessons, whether it's writing, it's just jumping in and doing um, can teach you so much more. And so if, if the inclination is, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of sitting back thinking that I needed to know how to write before I could write instead of just trusting that I did know how to write and I did know how to make a lot of mistakes and I was going to learn from those mistakes. Um, that, that would have served me far better. I mean, I wrote my first novel when I was 23 and I learned so much from that experience. And I learned so much from the seven or eight books that I wrote after that, that didn't get published. Yeah. Right, um, right. So much more than, than I did from sitting around reading books on how to write or going to, to conferences or, you know, trying to figure out how to write. There is, there's no substitute for just getting in there and, and making your mistakes. Right. Right. Yeah. Because they're not actually mistakes, are they? If you, if you've learned from them and then they're just, they're not mistakes, they're stepping stones at that point. Yeah. Right. It's, that's a lens question, right? That's a Mm -hmm. perspective question, which is like, which is like, was this a mistake or was this, was this an important uh, piece of this puzzle that I've just fit into place now? Yeah. I mean, Victoria Holt, who was a hugely successful and prolific writer, um, used to say, never regret. If it's good, it's great. If it's bad, it's experience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think we have to, we have to be willing to, um, to not be perfect and to not put so much pressure on ourselves to, to get it right, right out of the gate. I mean, that was, um, actually a very good piece of advice I got from my first editor because I explained to her that I always expected my first drafts to be um, clean and pristine and beautiful and perfect. And she said, that is a very, very good way to give yourself a heart attack. Um, <laughs> she said, you, you've got to be comfortable with being bad. Yeah. Um, and, you know, <sighs> and, and, and of course, being bad is a relative thing um, when you're a professional writer, but, but it means be comfortable with knowing that what you put on paper in the first draft is not your best. Right. It is not this book's best. And the best you're able to give your first book is not the best that you're going to give your 10th book or your 20th book, yeah. because you're going to learn so much from all the other books along the way. Yeah. Yeah. There's this quote, I can't remember who said it, but it's, it's a great one, which is um, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. And um, I think there's a lot of overlap with the writing life with that. Yeah, now that you absolutely. don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Very, Whew. very true. <laughs> I could just get lit. I mean, like, let's just start hour two now, put on the clock. Here we go. Um, Deanna, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so grateful uh, to be able to do the show and to be able to talk with authors like you and writers like you who so freely share a lifetime of lessons. Uh, and one of the things I've been I've just fallen in love with over and over again with the writing community is how much writers want to help other writers and to share the burden in any way possible. And I really felt that in this interview and I know the listeners will as well. And your openness and spirit, it's just, it it really is. It's humbling and it's inspiring. And I've learned so much from you. I'm sure everyone else will as well. That's very kind. Thank you, Brian. I'm so grateful. Um, Before we go, please let us know where can we find you out on the internet? 
Where do you hang out? What are your main I haunts? am at com. I occasionally post on Instagram and I am on Twitter all the time. I Twitter. love and Twitter. I love Twitter. Twitter. Okay. I'm, Twitter. I'm just getting into Twitter. So, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll follow you. I did, I did already follow you, but I'll, I'll, I'll start um, watching what you do and try and copy some of it. Cause I, I don't know if I understand Twitter yet. I just don't know. Well, if I you know it. what, uh, if you're following me, it's, it, it's going to be a fair bit of um, otters and um, <laughs> British politics right now. I'm obsessed. Okay. okay. British politics. Yeah. A lot going on there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you again so much. It's been such a pleasure and uh, just, just such a fun time interviewing you. Thank you so much, Brian.